Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from an educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to share that both this podcast and the community I started in 2021 called The Iconic Journey in CRE is now part of a new nonprofit organization with that same name. The new company will offer opportunities for sponsorship to grow the community both in membership and in programs. It also allows you as listeners to show your appreciation for this podcast, which has delivered episodes twice monthly since August 2019 with a charitable contribution. Transitioning the community and podcast into the nonprofit organization is underway. The community, which is open to commercial real estate professionals between the ages of 25 and 40 years old, is currently up to 65 members and growing. If you would like to learn more about either joining the community or contributing to the podcast, please reach out directly to me at john at coenterprises, C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com. Separately, my private company, Coenterprises, now will focus only on advisory work for early stage real estate firms and career counseling. If you have interest in learning more about its services, please review my website at coenterprises.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. I am pleased to introduce my guest for today's show, who is Louis Dubin. Louis is the principal of Redbrick LMD, which is a cutting edge development firm here in Washington, D.C. Louis is a seasoned real estate developer who shares his journey and insights in the industry. He discusses his role at Redbrick LMD, the company's growth, and its strategic approach to development, emphasizing community impact and sustainability. Louis uh, reflects on his family legacy in real estate that goes back to the 19th century in Baltimore with his grandfather and even great-grandfather involvement, his educational background, including law school he attended, and his formative experiences, which also included working at the Resolution Trust Corporation during the early 90s when we had issues, where he managed a portfolio of $40 billion, and then subsequently to the founding of his private equity firm, and development firm at Athena Capital. He talks about the challenges and strategies in wealth management and and real estate development, highlighting the importance of social responsibility, technological advancements, and long-term investment in the opportunity zones 
which is where, where his company invests with his deals in Southeast Washington, which we go into detail about. This episode also concludes with his, his values and his advice for young people in the industry, which is sage. So thank you for joining me uh, again for this wide converse, wide-ranging conversation with Louis Dubin. So Louis Dubin, welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. I overviewed your biography in, our, in the introduction. We met in 1989 or 1990 when your dad, Dick Dubin, in a partnership with NHP, was selling Grosvenor Tower in Rockville, Maryland. And I represented Aetna, who had the property under letter of intent at the time, until they decided not to proceed, unfortunately. But it was good to meet you and your father at that time. A disappointment, but I still enjoyed meeting your dad and you. Before going into your personal history, please share your role at, the, at, at Redbrook. And I met your partners, Tom Skinner and William Passmore, several years ago, prior to your merging your former company with them. It seems you've helped them grow considerably since you joined them in 2013. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, today. Thank you, Louie. My role at Red Brick LMD is really quite simple. Three of us own the firm. We, Red Brick became Red Brick LMD when I joined in 2013. Uh, my initials are LMD and my prior firm was LMD Worldwide. Okay. Before that was Athena Group. Mm-hmm. So it was very simple. We didn't have all the fancy branding people today. We probably would have spent you know hundred grand figuring what the right name was. But mm-hmm. we decided to come together. We just took Red Brick and LMD, and hence Red Brick LMD. The roles here are somewhat uh, um, definable and siloed. At the same time, it's all for one, one for all. It's a very different sort of sense of sort of governance. The three of us own the firm. Uh, all major material decisions here have to be unanimous. And therefore, we're constantly talking about what's going on, what strategy is here, what we're developing, what financial structure is appropriate for us. My main role is overseeing all of the capital, equity capital that comes into the firm. We have our own white-labeled broker-dealer with Foresight. That allows us, with our own licensed people, to raise capital directly, typically through the wealth management groups at UBS, Alex Brown, Raymond James, about 30 registered investment advisors, some insurance companies, some banks. But it gave us the ability institutionally to raise capital in a way that most people in our industry don't do it, and that's in the ultra-high net worth world through these institutional wealth management channels. Mm-hmm. And that gives us very much a, a national platform to raise large amounts of capital. And we are equity top heavy as opposed to debt top heavy. And my other roles are really overseeing a lot of the design development here with our development teams, the product. Remember at the end of the day, a lot of people think that development is very much around, you know, clever, you know, debt and capital stack engineering. We've always, we've always believed here that you make your money on the real estate. I think that's what I learned from my grandfather, my father, my, my former father-in-law. It's all about the real estate. And these other you know, capital structures can be accretive at certain times, and they can also have you end up losing the property. So very much overseeing the equity capital formation in the firm, the strategy on what we build and when and how, 
ultimately how we capitalize, which for us really means how little debt do we put on as opposed to the, the typical, you know, lots of debt and lots of fancy structure. So why don't you now tell me a little bit about your origins, youth, and parental experiences. I understand you're a fourth generation developer going back perhaps into the 1800s, possibly, uh, in Baltimore. Yeah, tell I was, that story. I was born in D.C. at Sibley. Yep. Grew up here. Very proud product of the public schools in Montgomery County. Mm-hmm. Uh, went away to college, came back for law school to D.C. Yep. My great-grandfather, my grandfather and my father were all developers. My great-grandfather started in development in the late 1800s in Baltimore. His original profession was manufacturing gas mantles, which today would be akin to manufacturing light bulbs. Huh. He manufactured and distributed gas mantles, which were the wicks in in gas lighting. Kerosene? In homes, mm-hmm. in whatever kind of oil they were using. Right. And then later on, when they piped in natural gas, mm-hmm. you actually, in some cases, had it hooked up to, sure. to gas, like a gas lamp in the, in the street. Mm-hmm. And by the late 1800s, he pivoted. He was in the lighting business, not the gas mantle business, to electrifying cities with Edison and built some of the very first dual system apartment and office buildings ever to be built with both the the gas wick and the electric. Electricity back then was not reliable, so you needed both systems. And he built some of the first buildings with electricity cool. on in a number of the major mid-Atlantic cities and markets. And then hence, you know, started building and developing more and more with apartments really being his for He had nine children. My father, who was my grandfather's son-in-law, not his son, mm-hmm. followed in the footsteps. Most of my family are in the building, building trades, development, construction business. When I first started, I had to give a last look to Masters Lumber, which was my great uncle's company. Hmm. My grandfather's brother, for the last price on lumber when I was building homes, when I first started out, because in the family, you always gave last look to members of the family that owned the plumbing concession within the family, the electrical concession, the, the lumber concession. And the last one, one that was relevant to me was Uncle Eddie and having to go to Master's Lumber for, you know, the last quote. So I grew up here. This is my hometown. Mm-hmm. Love Washington. That's great. So you learned a lot about the construction business then from your, your father and from your all your other uh, uncles, etc. And my grandfather. My right. grandfather was the first one to teach me how to underwrite on a piece of paper with a pencil, because you need an eraser, yes. on a piece of graph paper, how to underwrite um, a uh, single-family housing project as well as anything that was income-producing. And a uh, piece of graph paper and a pencil, and I can still remember That's cool. him taking me through it. And if it took more than one page, it was too complicated, you shouldn't do the deal. So you know the back of the envelope pretty well, then. <laughs> I grew up with it, and I and and when I got married, my father-in-law at the time was Al Taubman. Yes, he was back of the envelope. Yes, and he was one of the richest men in the world at the time, and it was back of the envelope. Well, it's sometimes the the most successful people are the, are the simplest as far as what what makes sense in my experience. So that if, if certain things work on a very simple basis. 
then they'll do it. And it doesn't have to be complicated. Yeah, and it's location, 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 and uh, not having a lot of debt. You know, that'll take you everywhere. It, it's also very helpful if you're buying, you know, at the low end of a cycle. So basis matters. Yes, of course. So you never want to overpay. You can't afford to. Sure. And uh, some very basic lessons, but I agree with you. Mm-hmm. The KISS, the, what is it called? KISS, keep it simple, stupid. Absolutely. So what did your dad teach you specifically? What did you learn from him? Oh, my gosh. I learned an awful lot. I learned a lot from my dad. Um, I learned how to construct buildings. Okay. I learned the value of early bird getting the worm. I'd get up very early. He was up by 4.30 or 5 every morning. (laughs) And he would do that because he'd have multiple jobs, multiple projects going at one time. And they could be an hour away. And by 5.30, he was in his car going to Baltimore, Prince George's County, Anne Arundel, Montgomery County, visiting his projects, checking on the status of construction, et cetera. So early bird gets the worm. I learned the value of very hard work. My dad worked six, seven days a week. My father's day, the sales office did 50, 60% of their sales activity on the weekends. So you built during the week. And if you were a home builder, you sold on the weekends. And he would you know, sit jobs with his salespeople very often on weekends. And so I always prized the time I had with him, you know, going and sitting in those sales office and watching his sales managers and others, you know, qualifying people for a home and, you know, the symbiotic relationship with whatever mortgage company was sitting the job and how it all worked. Mm-hmm. So I learned a lot about the business. I learned a lot about, as I said, work ethic, about getting up early. The value of integrity, do what you say you're going to do, really important. Did you know you wanted to be uh, a real estate developer when you were little? I mean, when you or when your dad, did your dad just kind of, just kind of grew on you or what what was? My dad really wanted me to go to law school. Okay. And I went to law school. Yes. And as soon as I passed the bar, that was the end of my legal career. All I ever wanted to do was build. So he's the one that influenced you to law school. That's interesting. What? Why? I mean, what did he want he, you to be a lawyer internally, or because at the time he felt that that having a profession was sort of the guarantee, you know, professionally that you'd always be okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it was very important to him since we had the resources and means that I get as much education and schooling and credentialing as I could. But what it really did for me is at I got out of law school at 24, and I was never afraid of things. There wasn't some lawyer, some land use counsel, some contract lawyer, some finance person that could sort of bamboozle me with concepts and ideas I couldn't understand and intimidate me. So law school was a really important thing for me to do because early on, Right out of law school, while I was studying for the bar, I started building. And it gave me a really good foundation, confidence-wise, that I, I wasn't intimidated. Why law school not getting an MBA? I learned the rules. Okay. I mean, building, development, all right. a lot of it's all around the rules. Yeah. A lot of it, I, I clerked when I was in law school sure. at Windows and Blocker. So I learned land use. Sure. I learned contractual side. It was about learning the rules, and it serves me well today to know the terms, the phrases. I can't give you any kind of 
real analysis locally on a jurisdiction in terms of zoning. But there isn't a zoning lawyer in this country that I couldn't talk to, with the exception maybe of uh, Louisiana, which is but at least understand and be able to ask the right questions and have a have sort of a professional dialogue with counsel on 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 things. So it's, it's very it was, it's always been very very helpful. I'm sure it helped you in your career looking at deals that were a little bit off the table for others. You had a different vision for it, which I'm sure. And helped. being able early on to buy non-performing loans. Right. And, REO and go through complicated legal processes. Yeah, all that. Any other family influences or stories? Well, my grandfather was quite influential in my life, too. He okay. also would take me from time to time to his projects, and he had thousands of apartments that he owned in, in the D.C. region. What happened to his portfolio? Uh, AIMCO. Ah. Upreed okay. units. You probably are familiar with Yes, that. of course. Upreed, so... Our family still has, we're still major owners in UDC. Didn't AIMCO also take over NHP at one point? I thought they were the company, your, your father's partner. They were. That's what I thought. They were, exactly. But these public REITs offered a great you yeah. know, estate planning solution mm-hmm. to, to sell and not have a tax liability. There you go. And then with the step up in basis, as many of your listeners are probably familiar with, and if they aren't, they should learn about it. It's a great estate planning tool. Yeah, I've interviewed several REIT CEOs, so yeah, we've talked about it in the past. So you, you attended WNL undergrad, Washington Lee. Is there anything you learned there that you thought were, was interesting? Did you enjoy that environment down there? I loved it. And I still have some of my very best friends from Washington and Lee. And I think that really reinforced the idea of integrity. It was a school with very old-fashioned values. Yes. The honor code there still is today and was extremely strong. Mm-hmm. And I think that even today, there's sort of a network at Washington Lee. If you're dealing with a WNL counterparty in a transaction, mm-hmm. there's a certain level of behavior you'd expect. Sure. And it served me really well when I went to New York, ultimately, where what distinguished me early on was I was just a straight shooter. You know, there wasn't all the nonsense. And, uh, you know, when I was young and I moved up to New York, that that was a really helpful thing. I think it was part of who I was, but I think WNL really reinforced that quite a bit. I love WNL. Did you go right to law school after graduating? I did. Okay. Went right to law school, which was a little bit, a little bit unusual. Yeah. But I, you know, I went right to law school. Uh-huh. I was able to. And That's I great. went right to law school. Why AU? So I didn't get into Georgetown. <laughs> I was okay. listed at Georgetown. I either wanted to go to AU or, or Georgetown. It was a very close second choice. Could have been my first mm-hmm. because it had a, pro, a pro, program in international law at the time that was almost as good, if not as good, as Georgetown. And I had a really weird, I was always a, a very curious person as a kid. I remember having read back and forth the Encyclopedia Britannica because I was really thirsty and hungry for, to learn about things. I loved learning about the world and thinking about the world. And had the only program at the time, this was in 84, where you could go, if you were at AU, you were automatically accepted to a term in China mm-hmm. at Beida Fudan Hong Kong University. So I could go to school in China in 1984. 
Now, mind you, I didn't go until 85. Mm -hmm. But I could go to China and study, and this is when the Chinese were still wearing Mao suits. But I thought that there would be... Was Deng Xiaoping? Yeah, Deng Xiaoping, and, and I thought that the Chinese economy mm -hmm. was the sleeping dragon, and was the, 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 the next few decades would be theirs, and I was right. So you know, very, very early on, I wanted to learn about that part of the world, you know, through the lens of going to like the, the, the Yale and uh, Harvard of, uh, of China. And I wrote my thesis in law school on the Chinese economic contract law of the People's Republic of China. Wow. It was promulgated in 1985. It was the very first economic, foreign economic contract law they ever, had ever promulgated. And I was able to do that because my professors wrote it at, at, the, at the universities. You lived quite poorly there. It was, it was, there was no, in, no tourist infrastructure. There was no Western comforts. Was it in Beijing? Um, three. I, I lived in Beijing at the dorms at Beida. Mm -hmm. I lived in uh, Shanghai and at Fudan University. The dorms there, okay. and at Hong Kong University as well. Wow, what that was a different story, Hong Kong. But it was very exciting, and uh, I had some unbelievable professors and adjunct professors at AU. Have you been back? I w was on the board, the, the dean's advisory board at AU for oh, to China, yeah, to China. Not in many years. I had a joint venture briefly with Hong Kong Land in the late 80s, early 2000s. So I was in Hong Kong a few times with the, the leadership of Hong Kong Land. But they were, they were more British than, yeah. than anything. Yeah. I, did, I was involved with the Mandarin Oriental here in Washington and dealt with, that's a Hong Kong-based company. So it was interesting. I mean, it was, the, even the, the Chinese natives were more British than anyone I'd ever met. Oh sure, I mean, it was a whole, yeah, it's a whole subculture. I think the Brits, Hong Kong's like five or six families basically control Hong Kong. Yeah, it's interesting. So you joined your father's firm right after law school, well, general, sort of as a general counsel. Yes, the first year out of law school, when mm -hmm. I was sitting for the bar, I um, built uh, thirty houses. Okay, in Anne Arundel County mm -hmm. on Broadwater Creek which is right near Deal, Maryland. Mm -hmm. And Old Court Savings and Loan, which had gone <laughs> bankrupt, had this piece yes. of dirt with fully subdivided lots that I could buy for next to nothing. So this was after they went under? This is after they went under. Okay. Even the street lights were in with no houses on it. Wow. And uh, that was my first project. How'd you find that deal? <sighs> He's since left us. Um, but an old school guy, wonderful guy named Paul Greenstein. I haven't thought of Paul in a long time. Wonderful man. He and his brother, his brother was an accountant. They were builder developers. And I think Paul was in his late 60s, early 70s. And they really wanted a young partner to do work. <laughs> to show up, to run the super, to run the sales. Did they have Oh, my dad knew them, yeah. members of our club. Like sure. They, yeah. they were a lot of connective tissue. Yeah. Wonderful, honest people. And uh, they had found something that was really quite valuable, but someone needed to do the work. Good experience, then. And uh, so I partnered with them. And within a year, it was clear that the bigger deals, the bigger things out there to do at 24, 25 years old, I was not going to be able to do myself. Mm -hmm. 
And my father really put me into business, which I'm very grateful for. Mm-hmm. We needed to close quickly, and I needed like $800,000 for my share of it all. We were doing it all equity at first before we closed any bank loan. And they put up their share, I put up my share, and I was running it. And my father lent me that money and told me this would be the most expensive postgraduate thing he could ever support. Good luck. (laughs) Which made me very upset that, you know, like I was going to blow all this money. Uh I worked seven days a week. And when I was finished with my day job, I was meeting with the banks to get this refinanced. And within three months or so, we had it, not refinanced, we had it financed. I was able to give my dad. This is all for sale though, right? Yeah, for sale housing. Annapolis Federal. Got it. Interesting. And, uh, you know, getting a loan under pressure, you know, having to get it done because of that, you know. And the early 90s was not easy to get financing either. This was nine, by then it was 93. No, no, you're right. No, no, no. This was 88. Oh, okay. This is right at the beginning of the end. So, yeah, I mean, you could finance stuff then. Yep. And they they were willing to give me sort of a character loan, sure, because they had done business with my grandfather and father. Ah, okay. It was the old days. Sure, yeah, different era. Different era. Oh yeah. Um, So from there, I I I I found some other deals that we should do some farmland in Prince George's, some other stuff that we should do in Bethesda. And my father always had big stuff going on. Grosvenor deal. Grosvenor, and then Whitley Park over. Mm -hmm. Sure. On Pooks Hill Road. And, yeah. And I decided, and he decided it was best to team up and do the stuff together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was probably 88, 89. Yeah. Something like that. Mm-hmm. And then eventually you decided to go to New York. So talk about that. So I teamed with my dad, built a couple projects with him. Yep. By 1990, 91, the world had ended. SNL crisis yes. for your. Yeah. Your audience that doesn't know it, you should look up Resolution Trust Corporation, RTC. I'll give you a little homework. It was the cleanup agency for for all the failed SNLs in the U.S. There were about 780 failed institutions, right. ultimately. Mm-hmm. And the federal government, through its receiver, the Resolution Trust Corporation, became the, it was basically a private corporation owned by the federal government, whose job was to resolve and liquidate the failed institutions. And I thought that's where all the action was. I mean, if you wanted to really learn about how you buy non-performing loans and learn how to value portfolios and stuff I never even remotely had any exposure to, that was the place to go. Because by 90, it was clear, 1990, uh, there 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 weren't going to be any new buildings built. And so we were lucky that we didn't have a bunch of fires to put out and problems, my father and I. We had pretty much sold all the homes that we had built. And at the same time, I was too young to go play golf and tennis and all that stuff. So I wanted a challenge. And I was offered ultimately a position at the Resolution Trust Corporation as a consultant, but actually as an official there, which I took. In, Your legal background helped there. End of ninety, early ninety one. Yeah, DC was weird. I mean, it's still weird. You know, if you're if you're a young lawyer, there's a lot more opportunities yeah. available to you yes. in government. This is a legal and city. So now my legal background helped a great deal. I clerked at some top firms, yep. and this was a business position, 
at Resolution Trust. And in a very short amount of time, I became, I became national director of all land and land loans mm-hmm. at the Resolution Trust at about a $40 billion portfolio at the time, which was a lot of money in 91. And spent a few years at Resolution Trust Corporation designing and executing on, on some very large portfolio sales of partially completed buildings, a lot of lot subdivision, some partially completed single-family homes, finished single-family homes that hadn't sold yet. And that was an unbelievable experience. I got, was awarded Institutional Investor Deal of the Year, either in 93 or 94, for my work there, which was a big deal. To be a young person in the federal, you know, in a, basically a, a very high level, but federal job with that much attention, it was time to leave. I mean, you know, all the good that could have come was, was already, had already come. And I had an opportunity to leave and go to New York in 90, uh, end of 93, 94, and start my own firm. So I put together a little bit of capital. And I moved to New York and started Athena, and it really got going in very early '94. And that was helped with your father-in-law at the time. Did he help you with that? Absolutely. I didn't expect him to. I, I, the original backers made a deal with me that I had to offer my father and my father-in-law an equal share okay. in case they wanted to be involved. Because I didn't want they knew my parent, my family. They didn't want. You know, my father, father, wanted to be pissed off that that somehow they, mm-hmm. you know. So my father-in-law unexpectedly said, "Great idea, yes." And and what I wanted to do was buy non-performing loans and REO and broken deals, um, uh, like I'd been packaging and becoming quite an expert at the RTC. Right. And I put in my charter that I would do nothing with the FDIC or RTC. So one of the initial investors said, hey, I, I thought I was getting like sort of an inside track on things. I said, no, no, it just has the appearance of not being appropriate. As a lawyer, I don't do things that have the appearance of not being appropriate. So I put it in the charter. And of course, that, that, that investor fell through. But <laughs> that's only two of the entities that were in distress. Everybody else was, too. That so was my so point. So many opportunities. That was exactly my point. Yeah. My point was... It's fish in a barrel, and I don't need to go back. <laughs> yeah, you know, the perception, even though there was no technical conflict, because whatever I had worked on, it already sold. But I knew how those programs worked, and I, I, I didn't need it. And and I started, and and uh, my very first deal came to me a few months later. I had a reputation of knowing how to mm-hmm. diligence very sure. large, complicated, broken development deals. Mid-Atlantic National Bank in New Jersey had 32 assets. And you remember these things when they're like your first. About half REO, half non-performing loans, mainly subdivisions, you know, Cherry Hill. Good real estate. Good real estate. And I partnered with K-Hub, with Ara Hubnanian, and his father, Kavork. I said, you guys are going to build out this stuff, mm-hmm. and we're going to be partners. And we figured out a methodology of doing that, and... So all of a sudden, you know, the first six months of being up in New York, I'm 30 years old and I've got 32 assets in and around, you know, uh, you know, within an hour, hour and a half of, yeah. well, next to Philadelphia and within an hour, hour and a half of New York City. I mean, sure. so it was right in New York, right 
you know, mm -hmm. like Hoboken or Weehawken or things of that sort. So we were in business, you know, we, you know, hired asset manager, brought a partner in. And, did uh, you finance those deals with banks, or how did you how did so structure debt? The time? the charter, which the, with the prohibition on federal deals, is what got me J.P. Morgan. Ah, okay. They loved the fact that I'd left government. I wasn't going back to mm -hmm. do the government stuff. That sure. I had found this highly profitable deal, and they offered to. JP Morgan Investment Management, JIPM was what they were called back then, JPIM. Yep. So they backed me on my first deal, and they ended up being my my large capital partner on the first four or five deals that we did. Actually, my recollection is they wrote like an eighty percent, you know, eighty percent of the dollars we needed. We put in twenty. We just I just go syndicate and put it together, and we had no debt. All in way. I mean, they were preferred equity before they even knew what preferred equity was. Sure. So they right. got paid back first, you know. But, mm -hmm. but yeah, old. I mean, really, really old school. Well, the debt markets were somewhat tumultuous at that point until CMBS really emerged. Yep. This was about 93, 94. Yeah, and I was early on, before the, the commercial CMBS markets, Michael Youngman and Ken Bacon, who you... I know Ken. I've interviewed him. So Ken and Michael Youngman really did yeah. start all of that at the sure. RTC. Yeah. They had us. They had the first CMBS desk because they had enough product right. that they could make a market and figure out what up to what loss they were willing to take. Mm -hmm. You know, and... Well, Fanny started the MDS business, so, yeah. So, you know, the RTC was really a, a laboratory for a lot of today's real estate finance, you know, and structuring and the way things are done or have traditionally been done. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so that, led, so the, in the very beginning, it was JP Morgan Investment Management and my father and my father-in-law at the time just didn't believe me. Like you're 30 years old, JP Morgan, how are they gonna finance you? They don't finance people, you're not, you're not old enough. So I started closing deals and making money. And right. It was, it was really sort of funny. It really gave me, you know, it was like that first deal I did with my dad's money. All I wanted to do was pay him back. Mm -hmm. So sure. I just wanted to perform. Right. And, you know, all the snickering, 30 years old, you're doing this on your own. Yeah. So I did it. I mean, instead of worrying about it, having debates about it, you just go do. There were several people about your age at that time that did similar things. I Barry Sternlich. Barry's one of them. Ethan Penner, I was going to mention, and, you know, several other people. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Sam Zell, of course, was older, but he did yep. in the market at that time. John Klopp, who runs Morgan Stanley's real estate group now, and Craig Hadkoff, mm -hmm. they had a company called Victor Capital, mm -hmm. and they sold me Midlantic. Okay. I mean, John runs, you know, Morgan Stanley's real estate. Sure. I mean, all their funds and groups today. But yeah, the fraternity of people I grew up with, Paul Casalonis, right. Jonathan Gray, who's not basically running Blackstone, right. just real estate. Yeah. It was quite a good vintage of people. Yeah. So that David Hamamoto, I don't know if you remember David, mm -hmm. but a lot of yeah. a lot of big players. Opportunistic plays and that. RTC I mean, was the. billions of dollars from that. That was the. That was the early proving grounds. The question I have now is whether today is a similar moment. 
I had a partner's call, I had a partner's meeting this morning, you know, is there blood in the streets yet? Like, like when, how do we know what metrics we decided the three of us are going to write up for next Monday's meeting, where we think we are and what the, you know, what we think the appropriate strategy is in terms Mm -hmm. of new acquisitions, because we've got a lot of dry powder. Talk about Athena's growth a little bit. How did it grow and what, you know, that was your first deal. Talk about your, how your business strategy grew over time. So 93, or 94 really, to, to 2008. 15 years. Yeah. Was Athena and many SPEs through Athena. Sure. I think, I think we had 25 acquisitions or so, something like that. I don't remember the exact numbers anymore. We had very high returns for many years, multiple funds through. Was it mostly opportunistic, high, high risk type transactions, yes. land development? Yes, exactly. Development. And then it pivoted, of course, to my core strength, which was building buildings, primarily in New York City. Okay. In Washington, D.C. All right. So the development activities were really D.C. and New York. Built a lot of uh, buildings in New York. Made a lot of money in New York City. Office mostly? No, 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 no. Residential. Residential. Okay. For sale condos. Okay. And uh, In Manhattan mostly? Or? In Manhattan, although I did the first major luxury condo deal in Jersey City. Okay. Which at the time was a nascent market. And mm-hmm. today is, you know, a, a big me- mega mega uh, uh, market. I built 111 Central Park North, the top of the park, 838 Fifth Avenue, 65th and 5th. Um, uh, so, uh, These are all residents. 43 yeah. West, 64th, between Central Park West and Broadway. These high-rise buildings? High-rise buildings. And I lived I lived in, in on the Upper East Side. I lived in New York for about 20 years. Right. So development, and then we were dollars with a control GP position in other developments or projects that had stopped that needed the capital to continue in a development partner. So that took us to places like Miami, Palm Beach County, Providence, Rhode Island, Boston. We did some very, we we had about 2 million square feet of office in Boston. We made a lot of money in Boston. It's a very long story for a whole other podcast, how you make a lot of money in, in an office. It, it all has to do ultimately with basis. Right. If you buy really low and you have tenants or a prospect for tenants and you don't let leverage screw you up, there are ways you can make a lot of money. I don't know about today, but back then certainly. And back then, office was very much... Different demand factors today. Different demand factors, but office was a very scorned upon product type, you know, in the, in 95, 96, 98. Well, what Sam Zell did in the early nineties in Washington and other cities, he just scooped up product at such a discount. Absolutely. We did similar. And so the office stuff we did, we made a lot of money on. Yeah. And then there was always land, big land stuff. We made a lot, a lot of money on, you know, especially unentitled land, Mm -hmm. you know, where we could buy it in distress or buy it really well below. And so you're willing to take entitlement risk? Uh, absolutely. There you go. Okay. That's part of the, it's part of the mantra. Okay. Some people are like, no. Well, we understand. <laughs> we understand it. And the older I get, the more, the more localized I get on 
being able to take. I'll, I'll take entitlement risk all day long in DC because mm -hmm. I probably, my partners and I probably understand it as well as anyone out there. Is there anyone who understands it better? I don't know. But we certainly were very comfortable with entitlement risk. Well, here. the government aspect is one thing, but the community aspect is another. And we can talk about that. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll get into that a little bit. So Athena was a 15-year effort. And uh, yeah, probably you know 25 transactions. Yep. 2008. The, yeah, 2008. I parted. I got divorced from my wife. My major partners at that time were my wife's family, and we parted in, in 2008, uh, right before the world sort of ended. It's between Bear and Lehman in that in that era. So the, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. That late that year. So. That was a big cataclysmic change in your life then. Oh, huge. Yeah. Huge. Right. Right. So then what? What was your thought process at that point? So I started Red Brick LMD. I had agreed who I would take from Old Co., from the old company. And I started on my own. Uh, you came back to Washington at that point? No, no, no. I was in New York. My daughter was still in high school. Okay. I've always been very active in, in my daughter's life and raising her and all. So... I really couldn't leave. Mm -hmm. And I started the Red Brick LMD. And what did you look at at that point? We were one of the two or three bidders on Lichtman's bank, Chorus Bank. Oh, sure. So we got qualified to bid on that. I put a like a billion dollar offer together on that with you know a big team of people I brought together. We went against Sterling and a few others. But we were one of a handful of bidders that were qualified. And we looked at that very seriously, and then I put a couple of other major assets uh, under contract. Mm -hmm. um, and had people with all kinds of problems unraveling. All of a sudden, I didn't have the unraveling, so I could, I could help put together solutions for people that had development projects that had stalled or stopped or things of that sort. So how did you come together with your partners now? So I decided to move back to D.C. in 2013. Okay. And I was really looking around, where's the next big opportunity? And I had built and developed all over this country. I had an office in L.A. at one point, Boston, Florida, in in, in uh, in, DC, in multiple offices in D.C. and Northern Virginia. And I was looking for dynamics that made sense. I'd done some work overseas early in my career. So I was really looking for where's the next emerging market? How do I find that? How do I have an open mind about it? Mm -hmm. I got remarried, had big opportunities out in Los Angeles, really didn't like living there and decided ultimately that Washington had that emerging market that I was looking for. Mm -hmm. And my wife was okay with moving from Malibu to DC, but not Malibu to New York. <laughs> okay. It's one of those. Yeah. And so, and my father was building a, a big project on 14th street. Okay. Um, called Bentley at the time, mm -hmm. and a lot of assets here. And uh, I took a little look around. I hadn't really looked at D.C. seriously for a while. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, the locals are really missing it. What's happening down by the ballpark? And in Southeast, Monty Hoffman's grand plans for Southwest. Yes. The entire city is going to pivot South and East. And it did. And I would tell people that grew up here, some of my parent, father's friends grew up in Anacostia and Congress Heights. Mm-hmm. These are areas that changed tremendously the last 50 years. As a matter of fact, my synagogue, their original cemetery, is next to Anacostia and Congress Heights. Washington Hebrews' original cemetery huh. is on Alabama Avenue mm-hmm. in Southeast D.C. Interesting. These were very diverse neighborhoods. Jewish, Italian, Irish, African American, mm-hmm. solid middle class. Mm-hmm. So a lot of cops, government workers, yeah. firemen, uh, teachers, mm-hmm. you know, not the wealthier area in town, but a very solid area in town. I don't know, something like some neighborhoods in Queens or something. So I saw this opportunity here in DC and uh, the Did locals. you see it analogous to Brooklyn? Yes, sir. Valentis. Even more uh, a Dumbo. Yeah, it's analogous to Brooklyn. Dumbo. Yeah. I always was in awe of the Valentis family. And for those listeners, look up the Valentises. Mm-hmm. Early on, they saw it. They saw it big time. Their basis was next to nothing. They were so dead on. And so I saw it. And then I, I got to understand how the Green Line worked, the Green right. Subway Line. Which in our generation, John, we, we all, red line was everything. Of course. Not anymore, but it was everything. The green line's a new red line. And I came to believe that 11 years ago. And so the first week I'm back, one of my great buddies who's lived on Capitol Hill for 25 years, he says, I got I to gotta take a ride with you. And he's a very well-known a political person, very smart guy, strategy. He says, I just don't get it. Mm-hmm. Why is no one buying this land on Howard Road at, on, at, at Pato Point? Why are all these big vacant areas, why is there this blight when right across, and they're going to be building a new bridge, Louis, you know, the new stadium has come, and this is all happening. Why, 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 why? This wouldn't why? be Jeff Epperson, would it? No, this wasn't Jeff. Okay. Je- Jeff owned a good bit of well, I know. what we bought from UBS, actually. Yeah, yeah he did. But my friend brought me over okay. and no, no, he had no connection to any of this. Okay. He's like, he was trying to, I, I think, seduce me into coming back to Washington mm-hmm. and he knew I needed something big. Okay. So I'd never done little things. And I'm like, this is a, this is a no brainer. And I, I said, let me, let me research and figure all this out. UBS owned the big important piece over on Howard Road, right at Poplar Point. And I learned very quickly that they had close to four acres. And uh, I learned even more that they had until the end of September 2013 to dispose of that asset and get their 90% loss share from the Swiss government. So this was in August of 13. They needed to move fast. Interesting. And so I needed to mobilize fast. And within a week, I met Tom... Skinner and William Passmore, who became my partners ultimately, and they had diligenced and analyzed the site for 18, 24 months. So all the diligence stuff, all the stuff I would have had started from scratch, they had done. And we agreed the next day, at a really good first meeting, let's pursue this together. 
let's just pursue it together. We have different skill sets and all. Sure. And before we knew it, literally three weeks later, we had titled the property. So major local families came in as investors, so did our capital, and we bought it with cash. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much been our mantra. All the land that we've bought up today in, in Southeast, we have close to 9 million feet owned and controlled in the city today. We have no debt you know, on land. So we do, it, we do it all equity on land. And then when we go vertical, we typically don't have more than 40% construction debt, which is one of the only reasons, or one of the reasons that we're one of the only developers That's still able to build. We have a $430 million project. I'm looking at the cranes right now through the window. Mm-hmm. That's going on. We closed that construction debt last uh, fall. Um, so, you know, this low leverage, own land, own land, with no debt, is the only way you're getting stuff done today. Well, that's a multi-generational view. Which we're not traders. We're, we're not traders. And then all of a sudden... In 18, actually the end of 17, mm-hmm. Opportunity Zone legislation came along. And all this land that we were buying got a major push because there was all this capital that needed to be in sort of emerging markets that qualified as being low income or historically low income mm-hmm. under the 2010 census. And that was a huge boom because a lot of the alternate worth market that had were taking capital gains it's able to use that program and put it into projects uh, of ours and speed up the development or redevelopment of these areas in Southeast that we're now building out in a very big and fulsome way. So you've got that big project, and you're also involved in the St. Elizabeth's project. Talk about that. So we were picked as the original master developer. We've been picked twice now mm-hmm. in different phases of that master development. That's gone unbelievably well. Um, very delighted with that. The first phase, we partnered up with Flaherty and Collins. We built 250 apartments there. Mm-hmm. We were able to figure out with Flaherty how to uh, how to do that 80% uh, workforce housing affordable. The requirement was 20. And we were able to use low-income tax credits and gap equity funding from the city and historic tax credits. To That year, we were the largest producer of workforce affordable housing. Is that a ground-up structure? No, that was adaptive reuse. Adaptive reuse of one of the hospital buildings. Seven of them. Really, it's beautiful. If you haven't seen it, you I should look yeah. at it. I, I it saw was, it before it started construction. Incredibly beautiful. Before you were even appointed. And because of the way it was constructed and the heights, they make for very generous apartments. I can imagine. Like it's really, really nice. Ceiling heights are probably not tall. And then we were able, early on, to partner with Whitman Walker. Yeah, for about 130,000 foot office buildings, which we cut the ribbon on with the mayor, I think in September. They have about 330 people working in that building now. That was a pharmacy, food, and health services desert. Mm-hmm. Whitman Walker is now able to see 10,000 people a year wow. that would not have had that kind of access to what they offer, including putting it on the ground floor, a compounding pharmacy. Of all the deals I've done, all the big projects I've done, I think I'm most proud of that because that was financially a big success. That's great. And it really brought something to a community that brings tears to people's eyes. Awesome. It was just needed access yeah. to really good healthcare, healthcare and dental yeah. care. Yeah. Dental clinic there as well. And it's state of the art 
beautiful Class A building, was just at their 50th gala. You know, I was in tears. I was so excited. I mean, we really did something, did something amazing with our skills and talent. We made money at it, and the impact that we had is, is colossal. We also are, this year will be done with uh, just under 100 townhouses. For sale housing was really important to the mayor, really important to us, you know, in, in building strong middle-class communities. You need homeownership. And about 30% of those units were in the workforce affordable program. So, you know, people that are working hard that, you know, perhaps aren't earning 150 grand a year, but earning 80, 90, you know, can get themselves qualified for. Before you took that opportunity, what, what was your thought process going in there? I mean, that was, you know, you looked at those historic buildings and you said, so how are we going to make this work? So we knew that, that there, were, there were parcels with no buildings on them. Right. There were parcels with buildings on them. Parcels with buildings on them converted well to apartments. Mm-hmm. We knew Homeland Security was coming with yes. their new headquarters. On the other side. We knew the Coast Guard was coming right. with their new headquarters. Right. There was a tunnel under the road, under MLK, right into right. our campus. Mm-hmm. We knew that the feds had big plans to have Customs and Border Patrol and ICE ultimately. And we knew that there are other federal agencies that were expanding there because of the cyber defense intel threats, including a defense intelligence agency, which is right there. Not all people know that they're, but it's public, they're there. They're at, 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 at Joint Base Anacostia, right down the hill, less than a mile. So we knew that there were all kinds of drivers there, you know, if you could put together a really good, safe plan. We also decided that it was really important that at the time the mayor, we, we had the, the option in our first phase on the entertainment and sports arena site. Mm-hmm. We thought that was a really good idea. The yeah. mayor and the city built a 5,000 seat arena right. right in the middle of all the stuff we were developing. And we decided, oh my gosh, we've got to build a town center here now. And before we do that, we're going to build the first all wood CLT cross-laminated timber structure in this area. And we're going to house at least 15 businesses there. There They underbuilt the food and beverage in the arena on purpose so that people, when they float out, would have to go next door or in the neighborhood to eat and drink. To get some economic, some dollars into the local economy. And what we did was we convened a jury with our, our partner in that and the new town center is Emerson Collective. What we did there was we asked the community to put a jury together with us to select out of 30-some applicants 15 local businesses that could go in in a subsidized way with full legal business coach accounting support for businesses that had already proven out that they had a product that was commercial and marketable, whether Mm -hmm. it was food truck or a small restaurant or someone that baked pies or someone that had a fashion brand or someone that had uh, an antique store or an art, uh, an art studio, someone that had commercially viable product to sell or food and beverage. We picked 15 out of the 30. They were all Black-owned Ward 7 and 8 businesses. And by doing that and by building something fabulously beautiful, the day we opened, we had 1,300 people at the opening. We were expecting 300. 
the community, they, they cry when they talk about it. Oh, the pride that they have. And I learned a lot in New York around how you do this right. You don't do it with brutalist architecture and chained stairs, chairs and, you know, concrete benches and uninviting, awful, sort of dehumanizing stuff. You do it in a way that is so beautiful, the local community is 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 going to be really, really difficult on anyone that defaces or hurts that place. Mm-hmm. That's really the key. And it worked. And it's incredibly beautiful, amazingly successful. Pre-COVID, they had over 100 events a year up there. That's great. And so they had this whole built-in economic cycle now that everything's getting you know, sort of restarted. So I interviewed Catherine Buell. Who, yeah. Who, uh, I did the deal with her. Yeah. So I knew she talked about St. Elizabeth's before. Of course, she went on to Amazon and yep. did amazing things at Amazon and now is doing a sabbatical up at uh, Harvard University. Yep. But uh, Yeah, Catherine's a lawyer. She's another that's right. reformed lawyer. Yeah. Her story is amazing. So the listeners, please listen to that episode. It's pretty special. And she was a big part of what you were doing up there. Yeah, she was the executive director for the mayor, and I negotiated with her directly. Um, Very deal. smart lady. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, talk a little bit more about the Bridge District project. You know, you've got several properties, buildings under construction there. Talk about that a little bit. So, our big theme today and everything that we're building new mm-hmm. is net zero. Sustainability oh, okay. is the okay. mantra at our firm. Okay. And we're currently building at the Bridge District. We're, we're able to build a little over two and a half million feet. We have the zoning in place. We're currently building about 760 apartments. It's under construction now. That building currently is the largest net zero from operations apartment building under development in the world. So the impact world is all over us. All that. Trying to understand. It's mainly, the interest is mainly coming out of Europe, to be candid. Europeans, especially the Germans, the Dutch, Scandinavian countries. Talk about the technologies that are accomplishing that. There's a lot of carbon sequestration. The bottom line is we're doing things like having our own batch plant, which lets us put a much more efficient mix of slurry. It makes us, it allows us to modify how much slag and ash we put into the mix, which means it takes a little longer to cure, but you're pouring it right on site. Are you doing the carbon cure process? Concrete is we're, part of that? We're doing a lot of embodied carbon within the concrete, right. which is getting us a lot of sure. net zero points. We signed a green uh, energy output agreement with Exelon Pepco. That's a big part of it. And we have really state-of-the-art they like to call it geothermal. It's really ground source heat pump, you know, energy. You know, how are you making your energy for your heating and your cooling and for moving your air around? That's a large part of it as well. We monitor it literally on a weekly basis. Interesting. HIT literally has a compliance person on the team cool. that is counting and judging how far the workers are commuting, right. how much gas they're expending in their cars. Uh, without the concrete trucks, mm-hmm. we don't have the CO2 emissions oh, and the idling because we've got the... the, the, the You're the, measuring it all. We're measuring it all. 
And we have a third party that uh, ultimately measures all of it and puts a third party report together on what the, when you add all of that up, what that adds up. Have you seen the American Geophysical Union building here in the city? Our team is toward it. It's been very interesting. We're modeling our future buildings, not just being net carbon zero from operations, but nets of carbon zeros themselves. Mm-hmm. And so our next building will be announcing very shortly. And our, 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 the, the, the rest of that build out over there, I expect all but one of those buildings will be wood CLT to 130 feet. About a year, about a year ago, we started with the district in getting, a, getting the building code changed over to the 2024 International Building Code to allow you to go to 130 feet as well. Wood CLT, is that similar to mass timber or is that same thing? It is. Cross laminated timber, there's different kinds of mass timber. Okay. Cross laminated, the the simple way of explaining it is if you take your fingers and and you don't cross them, you just sort of leave them like this, I can take my hand and easily break through. Right. The minute you cross it, that bond, you can't get through my hand. Got it. So there's a, a process that the Canadians do quite well. The leading technologist in doing the CLT is it's really- It's like mesh. Like mesh. Really the Austrians. Yeah. And one of the biggest learnings is there's less of a carbon footprint for us to buy our cross-laminated timber from Austrian forests that get railed to a port and ship to the port of Baltimore mm-hmm. than it is for us to truck it from the Pacific Northwest. Really? Which is not intuitive at all. Mm. But rail and shipping is just much more, much less of a carbon imprint than, than trucking. Mm-hmm. When are you going to start leasing the project over there? Um, five, sometime in 25. Well, 700 is a lot to put in the market at the same time. Well, we'll stagger it a little bit. Okay. But we have three different products. There. Everything for rent? Yeah, for Everything sale. for rent, but one of the products is, is more of a short-term stay. Ah, okay. And there's a huge demand for furnished apartments short-term stay here. Huge. You but no for sale product. No for sale product. Interesting. No, we went on this for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then other uses, you know, retail there too? Yeah, we have what's been announced already is we have about 24,000 foot lease with Atlas Brewery. Oh, cool. Which, as you may or may not know, they brew their beer with solar panels. That's kind of cool. So that's sort of consistent with our net zero approach. That makes sense. Um, so they've taken a lot of the first 40,000 feet, they've taken a lot of it. We expect to be announcing soon a really great market in there. Mm-hmm. And we have multiple coffee bar, restaurant, and other groups that we're negotiating with. Um, office use? No office use in that building. Mm-hmm. But we do have a building that we're working on that has gotten some, you know, gotten some publicity recently called the National Center for Cyber Leadership. Ah. There we're working both with federal partners, private sector, and universities. And we'll be announcing soon who some of those groups are. Well, looking at the WARF's recent success with some of the major law firms. It just seems to me that an Anacostia waterfront location, long term, might be worthwhile. The feds, the, the the cyber people love it because this is being built less than half a mile from us. Okay, That's that the makes sense. Cyber Infrastructure and Security Agency. You got DIA right down the road now. DIA less than a mile. Yeah. Homeland Security up the hill. There you go. 
And let's just say that you're at the Grand Central Station of dark fiber there. Interesting. So you can imagine all of the fiber that must run around and through there. Mm-hmm. So it's a very unique location. Mm-hmm. What other major initiatives does Red Brick have other than those two major projects? Well, we've recently, they've recently talked a little bit in the press about the Navy Yard. Okay. So we are in the process now of closing on about 15 acres right here where we're sitting at the Navy Yard, you know, right along the water all the way over to the 11th Street Bridge. Is that Brookfield the seller on that? Or are you working no, on that? No, it's a, it's, a, it's a land swap we've been working on oh, okay. for many years with the Navy. With the Navy itself, okay. And is that for government use, or what were you thinking? No, that'll primarily be rental apartments and hospitality and a lot of food and beverage. Great. So that close, what, next year, this year sometime? Next year, really next year. Great. It's like another 1.7 million feet. Mm -hmm. What about existing portfolio income-producing assets? We've sold most of our income assets off about a year and a half, two years ago. The prices were getting really goofy with like sub four cap rates on, you know, 40 year old garden product. So we sold, we had a few thousand apartments that we own primarily in Northern Virginia. We sold most of those. We still have just under a thousand units in Merrifield. So you're basically positioning yourself for development at this point. And, um, we have, I would say that that's fair and accurate. So you're not going to acquire existing assets until the market's kind of... Well, earlier on, I said, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of debating, not, not really debating, but discussing what what factors would indicate we're really at a lull in the low. And we've always been, Tom, William, and myself, quite good at buying things, you know, at low points. Mm-hmm. So we have quite a bit of liquidity right now, and we'll deploy that liquidity when things are compelling and opportunistic. So your website indicates that you have some experience and some deep involvement in opportunity zone financing. Talk a little bit about that and how you engineered that. So in 17, when we sort of got a whiff of the possibility of legislation that was being talked about that would bring tax advantage dollars into low-income census tracts. And since a lot of what we were buying, they were basing that on the 2010 census. In 2010, most of this area and Anacostia and Congress Heights, if not all of it, would have qualified. So we thought, oh my gosh, if this tax, if this tax advantaged law that's been talked about becomes uh, becomes law, or legislation becomes law, this would be incredibly accretive. Early on, we did some modeling and analysis on it, and we thought it was worth up to 400 basis points more in after-tax yield. So instead of getting a 15 IRR, you could get a 19, plus lots of tax goodies came along with it that I won't go into today, but it was even more creative than that. Sure. When the, 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 one, of, one of the biggest features of that was the fact that there was no recapture ever of any depreciation you may have taken, and all proceeds of refinance came out tax-free. So there were all kinds of goodies you could even factor into that number. So we thought, oh my gosh, this would be terrific. This would speed up development in some of these parts of town that traditionally uh, 
people had uh, said, oh my gosh, there's, there isn't an economic case for that. So we, we joined the, the early advocacy group for that economic innovation group, EIG, became an early, I don't know if we were a charter member, but a very early member of the Opportunity Zones Coalition, started going up to Capitol Hill, got very involved with legislation, got very involved with the regulations because they passed at the end of 17. It took them until end of 18, early 19 for the first regulations to even come out. Mm-hmm. We were all sort of guessing on how to structure this stuff. So we were very, very involved. And since it was worth hundreds of millions of dollars to us, we decided we really needed at the partner level to be very involved in understanding how this worked and creating products around it. So we did four different Opportunity Zone funds around raising capital into the buildings I've been describing for you here today. So just about all your developments are Opportunity Zone financing projects? Yes. So with that opportunity, I would assume that... With the exception of land, very often the land was, was stuff that was owned before. Sure. But what that does, it seems to me, um, since you raise equity in the syndication marketplace, that's a huge tax incentive for a lot of people to invest yep. in those types of situations. Huge. And so when you give a really big tax advantage plan... The sophisticated wealth managers, there you are. And hence, pre-1986. But our relationship with UBS, <laughs> Alex Brown, Raymond James, yeah. a number of other major yeah. insurance companies right. have wealth management platforms, yeah. big RIAs. Sure. Um, Makes sense. It just made sense. And we were able to do that yeah. in, in, in raising in tremendous amounts of capital. Yeah. So your platform, because of what you're doing, is very unique because... Unless you have the scale of development like that, it's really hard to justify the infrastructure that you've built for doing that. You couldn't. Yeah. You know, a lot of a lot of friends, a lot of developers, oh, why can't I stand up my own yeah. my own, you know, white labeled sort of broker dealer and you know, sort of mimic what you've done. Find the eight million square feet to build, then you, know. <laughs> you, know, you could, but yeah. you better be prepared to write, you know, I don't know, five to ten million dollar check to get it started. Right. I mean, exactly. just, just to put it together and recruit yeah. your people. And yeah. it's, it's not for the meek, but you need, you need big scale. Yeah. You need big scale. Yeah, it's not a, just a single project. It's got to be a, a major development situation of that scale. Fascinating. So talk a little bit about your team. You walked me around before we started today and introduced me to a few people. But talk about kind of the assembly of your team and what your thought process was as you developed the company's business strategies? Well, we needed we needed top development professionals yep. that also had really good technical abilities to employ some of these newer technologies so we could build these net zero buildings. Mm-hmm. So we needed the best of class developers, which not only included you know the really smart MBA types, but really focused on engineers as well. That under, actually understood systems, controls, you know, understood or could have the capacity to understand the technology. And so we recruited, you know, through executive search people, but heavily word of mouth as well. At the same time, we had some of the major firms in town like JVG and others laying off their development people. That's right. Going out of the hunting business and more into the farming business, as they say. And we were able to pick up from many of these firms, including Brookfield, 
uh, which varsity we've always been very close with and done a lot with and Brookfield as well, but including when they laid off most of their development people, we were able to pick up, you know, some of the very best people we had worked with there. So it's, it's really been, uh, you know, best of class professionals, young people that really excel, you know, as a young person in what they do, young people right out of school that can demonstrate critical uh, thinking um, that really are passionate about, you know, what we do, um, you know, the dream about building buildings one day. So one of the interesting things is you, you don't have very high leverage. And I assume, and I'm going to guess, I'm just speculating again, your story to your investors is we're going to hold these long because the Opportunity Zone... 10 years minimum, we tell them yeah, 12. The Opportunity Zone forces that issue. And we don't, and we want a future proof, so we need to be technologically advanced. Okay, there you are. Okay. The city, of course, wants this 2033 goal they're trying to reach, which is, you know, probably not realistic, but it's something they're reaching for. So it helps in getting approvals and all your, when you're doing all this, I have to assume from an entitlement standpoint to get all and everything you want to accomplish. So it's interesting what you developed and that's exciting. It's really exciting. It, it is exciting and it all sort of fits together. It's interesting. So what's the long-term strategy with this real estate? I mean, you're gonna hold obviously beyond that. I mean, you wanna just keep holding it or you, you're looking for an exit strategy? Well, the ozone fund investors expect an exit at some point. I assume so. I'm, we'll, we'll give them the opportunity to exit or not. There's lots of structures you can employ. Right. It's too early to say what and they can recapitalize do. if you wanted to keep recapitalize. Something. You know, in ten years, will there be a big premium for green read? Will yeah. we have the institutional yeah. stuff that very few other people have? I mean, there's lots of you know ways you could look at how you recapitalize. But right now, it's about it's about blocking, tackling, and building sure. out a portfolio. Is there anywhere else in the DMV that you're looking other than Southeast Washington pretty much now for opportunities? We will begin to, in 24, look at opportunistic deals, deals that need rescue capital, deals where there are, you know, buildings that have stopped broken projects. That's right in in our DNA. We have one of the best development and construction groups in the city. So those are the kinds of things that we would be unique of unique proprietary so CBD value. sites that uh, underutilized and underoccupied could be. Uh, Though no one showed me models yet, really, on how some of the CBD stuff converts. I mean, it, to me, there's a lot of TED Talk nonsense right now. Well, I interviewed uh, Matt Pestrunk, who was doing two major projects downtown and converting them to residential. And it's going to be interesting to see how he performs there. But one is a 700 unit project right here. Across from Washington Hilton, and the other is a 2100 M Street, which is a major mm-hmm. project on the west on the west end. It'd be fun to see how those come out. Big oh, I, no, I, absolutely. I'm just saying I don't know. We we have people that come through with you know stuff that they've tied up or have sure. under control, and you know we get to the punchline, and you know it's 12, 13, 14 percent IRRs. It's like, are you kidding me? Not enough. I could I could put a debt strategy together. Mm-hmm. You know, much less risk, much more priority to be paid back. Yeah. So I just don't know. I'm not saying it won't happen, but I I I think pricing has to go a whole lot the lower. Basis has to be lower. Get it? It's not there yet. 
There are trades now, though, that are sub 200 a foot in downtown Washington, so it's interesting. Uh, I know. Yeah, so it's coming, it seems to me. No, it's definitely coming. It's just what would we have to see as a firm to really jump in there and put a lot of resources? Because as I said, we have a lot of liquidity. So when we see it, we can move very fast and quick. Take the Warren Buffett approach. Just wait for the right pitch. There it is. We talked about sustainability. What about other aspects of ESG? Ah, I'm glad you asked. Our social impact is the real thing. You know, all the different, you know, abbreviations and the rest. What we're really about is building really environmentally friendly buildings that have incredible positive economic and other societal impact. The way we do that in Anacostia, and I'm very proud of uh, our head of construction because he finally gets it. He ran construction at JPG for 15 years. Mm -hmm. And at first, I think Paul was trying to understand, you know, just, just how important it was to upset the normal contracting and subcontracting methods he was used to and really giving a last look to the locals. Okay. And by doing that and getting to know the trade guilds and local firms that can deliver and that can price and even getting involved at times, where we're convinced that the local contractors may not understand the unit pricing or something, we've set up a methodology for local contractors to be able to win and to employ hundreds of local skilled workers, carpenters, steam fitters. GCs or subs you're mostly talking about now? Mainly subs. Okay. Because most of the projects we're doing on the GC, whether it's a GC, GM, or CM, there's only a handful of firms that can have the bonding and do the size of the projects. We're doing three, four, five hundred million dollar projects. So, but it's... It's not only in the discipline of demanding that our contractors, whether it's HIT or CAR or others, sit down with these firms, some of which they've never met before, and and figure out a way to incorporate them into a larger contract, et cetera. We have credibility. And because of it, a lot of the local citizenry in the ward will come out screaming and yelling to zone, you know, to different approval authorities. Let's go. We want jobs. These guys are performing, delivering for us. So it's a very positive thing. I think with these 15 local businesses going into our latest building, we get a lot of love. I'm, I'm constantly asked, I, I talk quite a bit, a couple times a year at churches in the community. Faith-based is really important. And talk about what we're up to, talk about opportunities. We have a head of community engagement that used to head community engagement uh, for the Attorney General before coming to work here, Attorney General for D.C., mm-hmm. for Attorney General Racine. She's unbelievable. She was Award 7, unbelievable, respected. Just even the the nonprofit side of what we do, all the community groups that are always needing stuff, needing our involvement, we are there for everybody in the community. Great. And it takes, it takes from the top. It takes us stuffing turkeys to you know, sponsoring things to showing up, cleaning out litter in a, in a park, you know, in our service days where we'll have 30 people from, from Red Brick. It, it takes a commitment. Mm-hmm. And with that commitment, you build trust. It's been over 10 years of, of you know, uh, doing what we say we're going to do. Have you been hiring women and minorities as well here? Oh, my gosh, yes. 
We hire the best people and they come in every shape, size, color, background. And I think, I think because of that view, we have a very diverse group of people here. We have, I don't know if it's, it's probably not quite half, but close to half of the senior leadership are women. It's a very diverse team, a very diverse team. Mm-hmm. So that's your culture then? It's the, it's the culture, but the diversity would flow out of the, 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 the focus and the policies that I'm describing to you. Mm-hmm. This isn't something you can hire like a diversity no. person like to go. You, you, got, you need to do it yourself. You need to do it right. from the top down. Mm-hmm. Then people come to trust you. We have internship programs with Anacostia High and Baloo. The biggest challenge we have there are soft skills. You know, how do you get the soft skills implicated? How how do you take a really bright young person, where maybe this is their first or second job, and have them understand what's required of them? Soft skills is the biggest thing. It's not it's not the brain power. I agree. It's the soft skills. And we have nonprofits that help with that that will literally put us an intermediary on the soft skills side. We've got our head of community engagement who talks a lot of tough love, especially to a lot of young people. But it works. We have formal programs. We have formal summer internships. We have internships during the school year, really only for kids in the ward. So do you, what, how do you recruit new employees? What do you look for in an employee? Critical thinking. We look for people that are not going to default to sort of an answer that would be the industry norm. I mean, it isn't the industry norm to be financing things the way we do. It isn't the industry norm to be building net zero buildings right now, especially the drink where there's no financing. But conversely, there's more financing for green stuff. So there's logic to what we're doing. It's just not the conventional wisdom. So it's really not the kid that's at BizNow trying to soak up and hear from talking heads that are all saying the same thing. That's, that's not the culture here. Both of my partners worked at McKinsey. One of them ran one of the largest uh, private equity groups at McKinsey. He was global co-head. Out of the box, critical thinking. So just you have to look at things differently. You have to look at things differently. It's hard if you're not willing to go home exhausted mentally. It's probably not the right place. So you challenge everything. You're challenging. And why is this the right answer? Why does this make sense? Why does it make sense to do things the way we do it? And at the end of the day, it makes great sense to the three of us. I mean, we are not merchant builders here. This isn't uh, really? a place to come and, you know, build a building and build it as cheap as you can and move on to the next. It's the opposite. Everything we're doing here is a future proof. It's legacy. You know, long term. That's great. That's that's what's needed today in this environment, certainly. So, since this podcast is aimed at young real estate professionals, please offer your thoughts on where you'd be focused today in both investment development businesses, product types, geographies. You've already talked about residential geographies, niches. I mean, if I'm coming out of school, what would I be looking at? You look at things differently. Would you encourage people to do the same? Yeah. Data centers. Yes. I would look at the confluence of technology, 
resilience and energy. Uh, it's not intuitive, but data centers are very much dependent on cheap energy. Yes. Just talk to Loudoun County, which yes. doesn't have any energy left. I toured one with my community. You did? Recently. So then you understand. Last month. So this is where there's huge growth. In my other life, I'm, I'm chair of REAC, which is the Real Estate Board of New York Common. Yes. So I chair that board. I've been on that board. I've been on the REAC board for 20 years. One of the largest public pension plans in the country. Mm-hmm. Recently, I don't want to say which managers, but two of the top managers were in. And they both have, as one of their niche focuses, data centers. There's a company here in Washington, Iron Point Partners, of course. very active in that. Um, but it's so needed. There's no such thing as um, lack of demand anywhere for this. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like what logistics was five years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, when we started being able, Amazon and the others needed all these distribution points and logistics was the greatest amazing thing. It cost nothing to build. You could put it up quick. But data centers and there's technology, there's engineering uh, around uh, energy, where you're going to get it, how much it costs. Well, AI is just and, accelerating that and AI. So, you know, that's a really cool place for a 20-something to be focused, in my view. There's still a lot of legs left, you know, in logistics plays, in life sciences. But any kind of uh, conventional thought on office or even multifamily today, I would stay away from it unless you want to go through the pain of reinventing some of these industries. Multifamily, I, I think, just because of cap rate, compression and rates, I, I, it's got to be down 20%, just if you do the numbers from Post, where it was on the high. Post-pandemic, um, my gut is that placemaking is more important than ever. And not only placemaking, but a reason to come to the office. Yeah, and that's one of our number one issues here is on placemaking and some of these new parts of town that we're building. Uh, we're teaming up very unlikely people and co-heads of projects, one with an incredible placemaking background, one with incredible budgetary and you know, financial acumen of, of what do I need to spend to get this look. We're teaming up different kinds of people to come at the placemaking answer pretty well. In our office here, we wanted great placemaking. We wanted a really nice place here where people that literally, like when you came in, you saw everyone having lunch. When you build these nice spaces, people stay in the office. Yeah. They want to be together. You need generous space. People want the space. You can't cram people together the way you used to be able to. And you lead from, from the very top. I mean, Tom, William, and I, we have small offices. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very rare we need in our office space for more than three people. So we don't, we don't need big space. Mm-hmm. And when you start with that, and a lot of your senior members also have the same size office as you do. I know it sounds sort of silly, but it, it creates a very collegial, you know, teamwork kind of environment, sure. even if it's subliminal. So, Dick, or Louie, what are your life priorities when family work and giving back? Um, well, family is first. It's the first thing I tell people when they're like in final stages of interview, and it always throws them off when they say to me, what are the priorities here? And I say the first priority is your family. And people usually look, especially young people, I'm like, look, you're you're a new parent, you're this, you're that. 
the needs of your, your family, your community, your elderly neighbor, your parents, your church, your synagogue, those needs are always first. That doesn't mean you don't work very hard. It means that if you need to go to an important soccer game or go to a doctor's appointment with somebody, you're just you're finishing the work at 3 a.m. Those are the people we want here. We don't want people who are going to have to babysit. You just got to get your work done. We don't, we don't need to see your time card. But at the same time, family and community first. And I think that goes a long way with people. I think it's one of the reasons that so many people feel comfortable here. It, it doesn't mean for a minute this is slack or people are like going to the beach, you know, for the week. No. But we are only hiring adults that know how to organize themselves to get projects and work done. So family definitely first. Community is very important. We live it here very important to me. My family's always been very involved. Philanthropically, we do a lot of stuff we don't really talk a lot about that does a lot of really good things within the community, including in Anacostia. But these are really important you know, things that, that, that people should also balance with their work life. And then at work, you know, do, do something spectacular. Whatever you're doing on the team, you know, be spectacular at it. But also do your work. Make sure that that spectacular you're trying to do, you, you've footed and vetted pretty well. What advice would you give your 25-year-old self? I'd probably do everything exactly as I did it. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I've had all these amazing different lives. Yeah. Home builder right at a law school. Yeah. Was a Fed for a few years. Huge power, really fun, really cool. Had the whole country. Yeah. It taught me the language of Wall Street. It taught me the ability... I had Goldman and Morgan Stanley and Payne Weber at the time and First sure. Boston and all right. these groups as my financial advisor, Jones Lane LaSalle, it's actually the Sal partners at the time. Mm -hmm. And all these, these, when I was very young, teaching me the language okay. of, of, of finance and investment so that I could start my own firm, do that, live in New York for 20 years, yeah. did really well with all that. The life experiences, I had offices overseas back then as well, we didn't even go into. But the life experience, I've had so many life experiences. Then to be able to go around the world and come back home, have an eight-year-old son and a 20-year-old, my 28-year-olds in New York. But I'm back home, and I like kiss the ground being back home. This is my hometown. So to be back here... Doing something with real gravitas is. And you've had you some know, struggles too, and you learn from them, right? Absolutely, and yeah. and but the emotional capital you get in coming home and doing all yeah. this in your in your backyard and yeah. building a new place of a, new, a whole new part of town is is exciting. My final question: Sure, if you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? Go for it! All right. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you.